session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. Today I have a special guest, so if you do call in, I ask that all questions be directed towards my guest who I'm going to be introducing to you shortly and related to the topic that we, we will be talking about. So let me introduce you to my guest today. Licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Tabasom Vahidi. She specializes in working with anxiety disorder issues and especially OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's what we're going to be focusing on, especially today's obsessive compulsive disorder, but also other anxiety disorders as well. And her office number, for those of you in the Los Angeles area interested in working with her, is 323 813 Dr. Tabasam Vahidi, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, my goal today is to educate listeners on the symptoms and treatment of OCD and other anxiety disorders. Um, I'd also like to dispel some of the myths about the treatment of OCD and the symptoms of OCD. So to begin, um, I'm just going to share some statistics. Mm-hmm. Research has shown that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States affecting 40 million people ages 18 and older. And although treatment is highly effective, there's only 37% of people that are receiving treatment. And I think, you know, this is the case with most psychological issues and disorders that people don't really know a lot about them, but also don't reach out for treatment, which is related to the stigma attached to it and also sometimes lack of education or information about disorders and what the treatments are like and what treatments are available. And that's why I'm so happy to have you on today to talk specifically about anxiety disorders and OCD, because many people might be suffering and they don't even know they are able to get help or what the help looks like, or many people don't know is what I'm going through or my family member going through OCD or some other anxiety disorder or not. And I think uh, that's why I'm so happy to have you who specializes in OCD and anxiety disorders to let people know more about what's going on, what it is, what it isn't, and also the treatments. Because I think um, when I've talked to you before about the treatments you do with your clients for phobias and OCD, it's really, I think, very, it's remarkable. It's really interesting and fascinating, but also so helpful to people where they can overcome something that maybe has been plaguing them for years or their whole life. And it's amazing. But I think we'll get into that later, things like treatment. Uh, but you mentioned the statistics and anxiety disorders affect so many people. Uh, it's it's quite amazing how many people are dealing yeah, with anxiety. A, exactly. There's a great number of people that are suffering mm-hmm. and either don't have access to the right treatment or they think, well, I've been dealing with this for so many years. Maybe this is the way I'm supposed to cope with things, but Mm -hmm. there is treatment and treatment is very effective. Yeah. And that's, I'm looking forward to, that's going to be later in the program. We're going to talk about treatments uh, for OCD and anxiety disorders. And also, as I mentioned, the phone lines are open. Uh, Dr. Tabasan Vahidi will be with you for the whole show today. So if you have questions related to anxiety disorders, especially OCD or phobias, feel free to call in 310-441-0555. So we mentioned, or you mentioned OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And this is one of those um, mental illnesses that I think people 
you hear people say it a lot, like, and we'll talk about that, how sometimes we'll maybe joke about it or even like show off about being OCD or saying someone is OCD. Exactly. So I think people maybe don't know exactly what it is and what it isn't. So maybe you could tell us a bit about sure. what obsessive compulsive disorder is. Absolutely. So um, OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. Obsessions are intrusive and unwanted thoughts, images, or impulses that can create a great deal of anxiety or distress. And typically, the person then engages in compulsions, which are defined as repetitive behaviors or mental acts to reduce the anxiety or the distress they're experiencing from the obsession. Mm -hmm. So a very classic example is someone who is concerned about um, being contaminated. And so what they would do is engage in hand washing or excessive grooming or showering for long periods of time to reduce the anxiety they may feel from being contaminated. Mm -hmm. Right. So the O is for obsessions, these intrusive thoughts that you were talking about. And then the C in OCD is for compulsions, those behaviors that the person uh, does in to try to reduce those obsessions or to, to deal with the obsession. And maybe you could talk about this a bit more. Sometimes the compulsion is very much directly linked to the obsession, as far as I know, like contamination and hand washing. Right. But sometimes there's things like that are more superstitious, that are not as direct. It's direct to the person, but it might not see, seem sure. as clear of a link. Absolutely. So I've had patients that will say, you know, if I say this word a certain number of times, then my child will not be harmed. Mm -hmm. And so there's some magical thinking there as well, as mm -hmm. though they're in control of these things from, hap you know, they could prevent from things going wrong or from things happening. But um, you know, oftentimes people will engage in compulsions to reduce their anxiety, and they may find temporary temporary relief, but in the long run, their anxiety and their um, their distress gets worse. Mm -hmm. And so the feelings become stronger, they're more demanding, they're more tenacious. So the way that I oftentimes explain it to patients is if you can imagine the OCD is like this hungry, insatiable monster. Mm -hmm. And so the more you feed it and the food is its compulsions, the hungrier it gets. Interesting. So it becomes a very unhealthy cycle. So part of the therapy is to do exposure therapy with response prevention. Mm -hmm. So it's facing your fears, but removing all of the compulsion. Yeah, and that's uh, something we'll get into the treatment in more detail, but it is really interesting, uh, this idea that if you're afraid of something, the only way to get over that fear is you have to face it, face it. which is obviously scary for people, but it's the only way to, to get over that. And so, um, you know, yeah, we talk about the OCD, obsessive thoughts, and that may be another word that people might say, oh, my friend or someone could say he's obsessed with the Lakers like for me like I do love the Lakers or obsessed with this or obsessed with that and so people might not know what's the difference between thinking about something a lot and being and something that crosses line to becoming an obsession right so typically when we refer to a thought as being obsessive it's mm -hmm. causing distress and anxiety so if you're sitting there fantasizing about something that you that's bringing on pleasure or enjoyment we wouldn't refer to that as an obsession mm -hmm. maybe we call that a rumination but it's not an obsession. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's that distressing element to it that makes Absolutely. it an obsession. Right. So, you know, so you talked about the obsessions and then um, the compulsions. And you mentioned some of them, but compulsions can range from a lot of things. I think most people, when they think of OCD, the first thing they think of is washing your hands a lot or germs. But as you mentioned, it could be saying a certain thing a num certain number of time or tapping things. Sure. Um, checking is a common one. There can right? also be mental compulsions. Uh-huh. And, you know, a lot of clients will come in and say, well, I'm not really engaging in any kind of compulsion. 
And there used to be a notion that there is a category of people who have pure O or pure obsessional OCD, mm-hmm. where it's mostly just obsessions and no compulsions. But we realize that's not true. Mm. That because we don't see, we don't visibly see the compulsions doesn't mean they don't exist. So a lot of people are engaging in mental compulsions where mm-hmm. they're analyzing or maybe they're counting in their mind or even praying. So it's not always so visible. Right. So it doesn't have to be a tangible, observable behavior. It could be something mental, which also um, I'm sure makes it harder if you're a parent, let's say, and you think your child has OCD, you might not know the compulsions they're doing in their head unless maybe you ask or you communicate with them. But doesn't mean that they're going to do some behavior that you can observe necessarily. Absolutely. What are some other examples of uh, compulsions? Because I know you mentioned those mental ones, but there's things like, I know, checking sometimes, for example. Checking, um, it could be counting, it could be reassurance seeking. That Mm -hmm. could be a form of compulsion. I know a lot of clients um, of mine who have had health uh, OCD or health fears, and they'll go from doctor to doctor trying to get reassurance that they're okay. So doctor shopping could be a compulsion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yes, compulsions could um, you know, show up in various ways. Right. There's lots of different forms. Um, of and the there's also um, various forms of OCD. So a lot of people think about OCD in terms of cleaning or arranging things or being very neat. But people could be um, obsessive about ver- you know, so many different things in their life. So I've seen a lot of people with sexual orientation OCD where they're constantly questioning their own sexuality mm-hmm. or relationship OCD. Do I actually love my partner? Maybe I'm not really in love with them. Um, or they might have a fear of harming someone or harming themselves. And I've also seen a great deal of patients with scrupulosity OCD or religious OCD where there's a constant thought of doing the right thing or the fear of committing a moral sin. Hmm. Yeah, there, I mean, the range, I think, is interesting, again, because I think even before I really studied it and, and talking to you, I've learned a lot about OCD, but I, you always just assumed it was about clean cleanliness and mm-hmm. washing your hands. Right. And I think that's why people often assume people, uh, you know, people who clean a lot or are very obsessed with cleaning, and maybe I shouldn't use that word even obsessed, but they focus a lot on cleanliness, we might say they're so OCD or you right. like people might show off about, oh, I'm so OCD, like I keep everything clean. But this is kind of a misconception of what OCD Absolutely. is or isn't. Yeah, a lot of people use it as an adjective to describe themselves as being neat or organized. Mm-hmm. But the truth is anyone who's ever experienced OCD has had a great deal of suffering and pain. And I feel as though that when people talk about it in that way, it's minimizing their experience mm-hmm. of it. So that's not really OCD. When people say, oh, I'm so OCD, I really like things to be a certain way, and I'm very clean. Right. Yeah, I think that's important. Like you said, it's a very, people who experience OCD is a very distressful disorder that interferes with their life significantly. And I think actually to get the diagnosis of OCD, as is the case with really any psychological disorder, it has to be interfering with your life in some significant way to even be any, it's depression, a phobia, whatever it is in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, you always have to cause significant distress in your life. So if you just like to clean things and it takes you a little bit more time to keep your house clean, that's not OCD. We're talking about people who it can affect their ability to keep a job or their relationships or getting out of the house or, you know, just really significant things. That's right. Um, because, you know, these obsessions and compulsions are, it's really consuming their day and their time and their mental and energy and their physical time to the point where people, I think, they, you know, lose their jobs or they can't even work or they can't. They're incapa- yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's the important thing, like you said, we can 
people, you know, they say, oh, he's so bipolar or um, some so-and-so's, I'm a perfectionist. And we throw these terms out, not really recognizing that the real thing is actually very harmful. Like real bipolar is a really significant mental disorder. It's not just someone whose mood changes a little bit or who is hot to you a little bit and then cold to you a few hours later. That's not bipolar. And similarly, OCD is not just someone who cleans a lot. Uh, we'll talk about what OCD, what we might say someone is so OCD, it might be obsessive compulsive personality disorder, something we'll get into later on. Um, but for now, we're actually at our first commercial break. Uh, again, I'm joined by clinical psychologist, Dr. Tabasum Vahidi, and we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder and other anxiety disorders. The lines are open 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. Back again, my guest today, clinical psychologist, Dr. Tabasum Vahidi. We were talking about obsessive compulsive disorder and other anxiety issues. And we were talking a bit about um, how people might colloquially use OCD or I'm so OCD and how that's not the case. But we're talking about a very serious uh, mental illness or disorder that people are dealing with when you really have OCD. And so you talked about the obsessions and how people have these unwanted intrusive thoughts and then they do the compulsive behaviors and sometimes the behaviors can even be thoughts that they do or they do them internally mm -hmm. to try to deal with those um, compulsion or obsessions. And what's interesting is you talked about this o OCD like this monster that you feed. And, and I think that's the case that's right. with most anxiety disorders or issues is that what anxiety does is because it gives you that feeling of anxiety, it encourages you to avoid whatever it is to get relief that's right but that relief kind of strengthens the uh the, the disorder the anxiety exactly Absolutely. yeah so you know i always tell clients what you resist persists and mm -hmm. becomes stronger and that's a quote by carl jung mm -hmm. so the key is to make sure that you're not running away from your anxiety you're able to go into it yeah. and experience it and even feel the symptoms of anxiety the physical sensations of anxiety and that's something obviously you you know you need to do with someone who's trained but the more we say i don't want to feel this i want this feeling to go away the worse the anxiety becomes yeah i think it might also be from carl jung i've heard it attributed to other people this quote that the only way out is through that's right. So, you know, sometimes when you're feeling something, you're overwhelmed, you're anxious, you're scared, you want to just get away from it. But the only way to get through something or to really overcome it, you have to go through it. And that's what I think anxiety disorders that are very much a strong uh, way of that concept, because the only way you get over the anxiety is you have to face it head on. That's right. And people have to be ready for that, that if they go to therapy, it's not just to go there and feel better. Uh, for anything, especially for anxiety disorders, you have to be ready to get uncomfortable, to face that discomfort. At least temporarily, At least right? temporarily until it becomes the, less uncomfortable. Absolutely. So one of the things I always um, remind clients, this work is really hard. I mm -hmm. have some really brave 
patients that come in and they're willing to face their fears or they're willing to do really hard work. But what I always remind them is, one, it's important to ask yourself, what have I lost to my OCD? Mm. What have I lost to my anxiety? And sometimes that's a motivating factor to want to do the hard work. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I remind um, patients is, yes, there's a lot of pain in having to do this work, but would you prefer pain or suffering? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you're right that um, we sometimes forget that inaction is a decision. So to do nothing to change your situation, you're still making a choice to stay in that comfort zone. And the only way you're going to get improvement is to go forward. I think that's a great point to realize, you know, not just the pain and the distress, but what have you missed out on in your life because of your anxiety or your OCD relationships, work, whatever else it might be, to really recognize the cost, how much you're paying for what you're going through. And yeah, being willing to face that. So I agree with you. I think people going to therapy in general, I always kind of commend them for the courage it takes to go forward. But I think especially with anxiety issues, OCD, especially it's could be almost the fear could feel overwhelming or the anxiety feels overwhelming, but those people that face it, I think it is uh, worth commending their courage for going forward. And a lot of people will say, um, I think there's still that idea or that notion that if you're going to therapy, you're weak. There's something wrong with you. But like I mentioned earlier, there's 40 million people that are suffering from anxiety disorders and only 37% are getting treated for it. And my guess is that's 40 million in the United States. Yes, in the United States. So that's more than 10% of the population we're talking about. So yeah, it's a lot of people. It's not just some people are dealing with it. And to me, emotional pain, psychological issues, it's part of being human, just like having a medical issue as part of being human too. And, you know, if you get sick or you have something going on, you go see a doctor to get help, not because you're weak, but because you're human. And that's something that happens to our physical body, to your emotional body or to your brain. We have issues that come up too, and they deserve to be treated so you can feel better. And that's, I think, something in talking to you um, about the clients you've worked with, with phobias and OCD, the types of changes they can create in their lives when they overcome or start dealing with their fears or dealing with the OCD, it's really amazing what people can do and what they can create. So uh, it's so sad to see people suffer and then to not get help when the help help is out there. And feel as though that's just the way things have to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, there is a biological predisposition to be more anxious. And so some people are just, um, you know, that they have that predisposition but doesn't mean they can't do anything about it. Right. And I so think, yeah. that's really important to remember that you can get help. Yes, there's no cure. Um, and I always tell this to my clients who have OCD. There is no such thing as a cure for OCD. Mm-hmm. But you can get treated and live a normal life. Right. Yeah, I think that's with most psychological disorders, we see that the serious ones like, you know, we don't always talk about curing depression even because it could come back. But it's about reducing the way it's affecting your life, maybe reducing that it comes back again. But if your goal, if you have anxiety disorder, if your goal is to have no anxiety, which even isn't natural as a human being, it's just not going to happen. That's You're probably not, always yeah, going to deal with anxiety. In a little life. anxiity is good for us, right? And that's something you and I talked about before the show today is this idea that really any psychological disorder is an exaggeration of some kind of natural, normal, or even an even healthy 
part of our psyche. So having some anxiety can be helpful when we're aware of things we're worried. Even sadness, to me, I talk about it a lot because I think people avoid sadness. People shame themselves for their sadness and judge themselves and others for it. But it's a very natural and we need to have that emotion. Now, if it becomes exaggerated and we become depressed and depression isn't just exaggerated sadness, but that's one component, that's a problem. Or even schizophrenia. We all... Uh, can think things and even creativity sometimes is about thinking differently or seeing things a little bit differently. When it gets exaggerated to the point where we lose touch with reality and we have a delusion or hallucination, that's a problem and that's schizophrenia. So OCD or anxiety or even phobias are in a way exaggerations of something that is natural and normal and even healthy. And what we want to do is try to make it from that unhealthy level of anxiety to a more manageable, tolerable one. And fortunately, there are ways to do that, which is uh, the treatment that you're involved with. Now, you mentioned a bit about um, the brain. You talked about that a little bit. Maybe you can tell people a bit about, and I think even when we say what causes OCD, that way of presenting it might not be right, but really what contributes to the development of OCD. Right, because we don't have an exact cause. Mm-hmm. We do know that there's a neurobiological um, there's an interplay between neurobiology, genetics, and environmental factors that can trigger the disorder. Um, and we definitely see OCD as a neurobiological disorder because neuroimaging technologies have shown that there's a communication error among different parts of the brain. And certain areas of the brain have shown to have greater activity. So in the orbital cortex and the caudate nucleus, there's more activity going on than in other parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. So, um, and the great news is that through exposure therapy, we can make changes to our own brain. And they've seen a deactivation in those areas of the brain um, through just behavior therapy alone. And mm-hmm. sometimes a lot of clients also need medication and behavioral therapy. And that's the gold standard treatment for OCD. It's mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy and medication. And typically the medication is... Um, an antidepressant, and a lot of people find that confusing because they think, oh, well, this is an anxiety disorder. Why am I needing to take an antidepressant? Mm -hmm. Because there's also research to show that abnormalities in neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and possibly glutamate are also involved in OCD. So an antidepressant, which is an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, is used to treat Uh, patients with OCD and most other anxiety disorders. Yeah, I think that's a big uh, confusion that people have. And it's understandable because if someone tells you you have an anxiety disorder, your first thought is to take an anti-anxiety medication. Just like if someone says you have a cholesterol issue, your thought is they're going to give you a medication that reduces your cholesterol. If they said take a medication that's for diabetes, you'd be surprised. Um, So people often are surprised by that and they think that, okay, I have anxiety issue, I should take an anti-anxiety medication. But anti-anxiety medications are very addictive and are not meant for long-term use. Neither one of us are psychiatrists, but we know of this information and uh, it's very much something people should be aware of. You can get addicted to them and it could actually in a way contribute to the OCD or the anxiety because then you start relying on that as a crutch if you're using it regularly to deal with your uh, anxiety rather than really trying to get to Uh, a way of facing it in a better way. But yes, antidepressants are usually the drug of choice for uh, people with anxiety issues. And we know that depression and anxiety, although we try to think of them as such different things, they're very much interrelated. Absolutely. There's a lot of people with anxiety disorders that also have 
co-occurring depression. And vice versa. Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, if you're uh, anxious and it makes you avoid a lot of things, it's probably going to make you more down and more emotional in that way and then and vice versa. But I think it was important that you mentioned OCD. There's a lot going on in the brain of people with OCD that is related to it. Uh, It's not the only cause, but we do see these differences in their brain, which always reminds me of this idea that when people say like depression or anxiety, well, it's just in your head. So get over it. Mm-hmm. And I always say, yeah, it is in someone's head. Something's really going on in their brain. It's Absolutely. not something they It's can almost just... as though there's a glitch in the brain. Mm-hmm. So the orbital cortex, that's the part of the brain where emotions and thoughts combine. Mm-hmm. It's also the part of the brain that tells us when something is wrong and when we should avoid something. And this is, uh, there's more activity going on in this part of the brain in patients with OCD versus mm-hmm. patients without OCD. And then the caudate nucleus, which also shows to have more activity, is the part of the brain that controls thoughts. So you can see how these Mm. things are contributing to a lot of the symptoms. Right. But again, I think, and this gives clients a great deal of hope, that when we start to respond to our anxiety differently, Mm -hmm. when we stop engaging in compulsions and trying to reduce our anxiety temporarily, we can actually make changes to our brain. Right. And so I always refer to myself as a brain trainer. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching you how to deal with things differently, and that is directly changing yeah. the way the brain responds. Right. It, it changes the brain even in ways that we can then later measure. I remember actually one of my uh, professors in graduate school was talking about therapy in general, but saying how through the process of therapy, you know, people, you can actually change the brain over time, an individual's brain. And so it's like, kind of like you're doing brain surgery without the knife or that being true but it is how it works (laughs) and this kind of it it relates to this idea of neuroplasticity and so before you know maybe just a few decades ago there was this understanding that the brain in childhood it changes and it you know you have cell growth and neurons and things can grow and die and all that stuff but then once you reach like adulthood that's it the brain you have is the brain you have for the rest of your life that's right but then they started to realize this is not really the whole story there even is neuron development and things that can happen later in life but also the brain can change a lot through your life through your experiences and the things that you go through and um, so this idea when you say people with ocd have these things going on in their brain it's not that it's fixed and it can never change and that's it it's actually that they can change and the treatment actually can change the way the brain is functioning or the relationship between different parts of the brain. And that's what I think is so remarkable. Again, like this idea of almost doing brain surgery without touching the brain physically is pretty cool. That's right. And, and so I always encourage clients to do exposures to help retrain their brain. But the key is to do exposures for long periods of time and to repeat it because mm-hmm. it's, it's almost as though you're trying to strengthen that part of the brain that's going to respond to those thoughts differently. Yeah. So um, I think that's also important to to point out. The other thing that plays a big role is genetics. And so um, OCD is shared more often in identical twins than fraternal twins, Mm -hmm. which indicates there's a genetic predisposition. In addition, there's higher rates of OCD among those with first-degree relatives with OCD versus first-degree relatives without OCD. Mm -hmm. So we do know genetics are involved, and there's actually a study going on at USC where they're trying to locate the genes. Mm. 
that are related to OCD and other related disorders. And I, yeah, and I think it's there's definitely a genetic component in which we see in almost every psychological disorder. But I think it's important for people to make sure they hear that correctly, that when we say that genetics plays a part, it's not like there's this OCD gene, like even you're saying they're studying it, but that if you have it, you have to have OCD no matter what, right? It's not like it's a one-to-one link. I mean, maybe there is a gene they will find. I don't know if it's just one gene. I'm right. sure there's a multitude of genes, but I do think that it's much more complicated. Right. And that. the interplay of this kind of, they used to always ask nature or nurture. And it's like right. both. It's always going to be a little bit of both. It's not like brown hair where you have the gene and you have brown hair. Something like a gene related to OCD, it's much more complicated than just the gene means it's going to express as obsessive compulsive disorder when this person reaches a certain age. That's right. A lot more factors play a part in that. But, you know, one thing that's really important for me to point out is that stress, Mm -hmm. um, emotional trauma, or poor parenting does not cause OCD. However, it could be a factor in triggering symptoms in someone who's predisposed to develop OCD, Mm -hmm. or it can worsen the symptoms for someone who has OCD, but it's not the cause. So I get a lot of patients, uh, parents, who will call me and say, did I cause my child to be this way? Did I cause my child to wash his hand as much as he does because I Mm -hmm. told him it's important to wash your hands before dinner? And I always have to remind them that it's not what's causing it. I do think home environment can sometimes exacerbate Mm -hmm. symptoms, but it's definitely not the cause. And that's why talk therapy is ineffective. It's not like you're trying to resolve old traumas to alleviate these symptoms. You got to tackle these symptoms. You can imagine if there's, you know, these um, neurobiological factors that are playing a part, then going into your history, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's causing it is not going to be the solution. Right. And I think that's something that we'll get into. We're actually just about at another commercial break. Um, but why it's so important that especially with OCD, but with anxiety disorders, that people work with a psychologist who specializes in working with them because the treatment is often very different, as you were mentioning than it is for a lot of other psychological disorders. And if people are not aware of that, they can go into treatment that doesn't help and maybe even makes it worse over time. And going back to the idea of parenting and stressful environment and how you're saying it doesn't cause, I think it's it's that important uh, distinction between cause and contribution. Lots of things can contribute to someone developing lots of things, but like OCD, genetics can, home environment, stress, they might contribute. But to say this one thing caused it is not going to be accurate because That's it's right. always much more uh, complex and much more of an interplay between different factors different that areas. could contribute. Yes, parenting can contribute to OCD being expressed in someone who has the genetic predisposition and other things that are going on. But to just try to isolate one factor is usually limiting right. in the understanding. But let's get to another commercial break. We do have a few callers on the line too we might bring on as well, but the lines are open 3104410555. Again, my guest today, licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Tabasum Bahidi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, my guest today, Dr. Tabasum Bahidi. We were talking about OCD and other anxiety disorders. And uh, Dr. Tabasum, if you're okay, we'll take a call. Sure. Okay. All right. Radio Hamro, you're on the air. Hello. Yes. Hi. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Of course. 
Thank you very much for the opportunity. Sure. Um, uh, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and uh, uh, um, I can't relate things uh, that I'm concerned about. So I'm just going to list them, and <laughs> maybe you can guide me or ask me questions if if more information is needed. Okay, sure. Um, so my daughter uh, basically is from my second marriage. I have a 26-year-old that moved out of the house when my younger one was three and then moved back home recently, like six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, um, she has uh, what her doctor uh, told me. She she is super taster and super sneller, so she's very... Uh, strongly sensitive about taste and smell, so we always have the struggle of what she eats and what she doesn't eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, she shows signs of anxiety. Um, um, also, she she is very obsessed with um, when she wants something. She is not like she doesn't. Um, she doesn't understand the delayed gratification, and I am sure it's uh, my shortcoming. <laughs> but, um, however, like uh, recently, uh, she picked up something from store, and I did not notice it until two days later when I saw that. Um, so I confronted her, and I asked her what she was thinking or why she did that. Um, she told me that she doesn't know what she was thinking and she doesn't know why she did that. Um, uh, so then we went back to store and and uh, she gave it back and apologized. Um, mm-hmm. Now, let me talk to you about that for a moment. Um, when you when she went back, what was that like for her? Did she seem really sad? Did she seem okay with it? What was that conversation like for her? So she went back to the store and said, I took this from the store two days ago and I wanted to give it back? No, she didn't say that. And she was very, very nervous. She said she she's about to throw up. And I told her, I, I know it's hard. I, I'm sorry, but uh, we can do this together. So she went to the cashier and she said, I, I picked this up and I want to give it back. Mm-hmm. That's exact word she said. Okay. And then afterwards, what, what was she like? What was the conversation like? Uh, well, the conversation was, um, I, I explained to her that, you know, that sometimes uh, those negative thoughts come to our mind that we want to have something, so we pick it up. And it, to, to I have to mention that it, it was only like, very, very insignificant as far as the value is concerned, but the the morality of it, you know, I explained to her that you 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 could have asked mom, you could have talked to me, but sometimes we have those temptations or negative feelings that we have to um, fight and we have to make a make the right decision, or maybe you can ask mom, or uh, you know, but okay. Well, I mean, I have some so thoughts about this, but I want to, yeah, I mean, it's not an easy situation to deal with and we don't know exactly uh, why she took it. I mean, kids do, that does happen. It's not something I would be extremely alarmed about. 
And um, but I do want to, you know, cut back to the idea of what, what you might think might be OCD. It seems like she has some sensory motor issues that she's had since uh, birth or like some sensitivities like to touch or smell or taste, um, which, as far as I know, can be related to anxiety and OCD doesn't have to be. But um, there does seem to be some of that. What else makes you think that she might have? obsessive compulsive disorder because you mentioned that you, you're concerned she might have that yes so um she uh, she when she wants to organize her desk for example uh, she spends a lot of time she's joyful like she's happy doing it she's not struggling but she takes a lot of time and she organizes it in such a way that it's very meticulous or sometimes we are at the store and the things in the shelves are not in certain order, so she starts arranging them and she says, I, my OCD bothers me. I can't stand. This is not in order. Okay, so um, so she herself says my OCD. Where did she learn that term or what has it, how has that come up? She, she has read that. She is, she, that's another thing that... I think uh, that has to do with OCD. She reads a lot, like mm -hmm. a lot. Okay. Okay. I don't know, Dr. Tawasim, if you have any thoughts so, or questions. Yeah, um, it does sound like she's um, showing some OCD um, symptoms. She also sounds like she has some sensory sensitivity, which I've treated in, in, in younger children. Um, so I'm curious because it sounds like she likes to organize and she likes things a certain way. And if they're not the way she likes them, she gets distressed or uncomfortable. Um, I wanted to know how you guys as a family have responded to some of her anxiety. Um, so I have, um, I have been taking her to therapist okay. for the last three years. Recently, however, her, she she didn't like her therapist, and something happened between them, uh, which is basically her therapist said she is going to split her sessions into half cognitive and half. She didn't say the word cognitive, but that's what she meant. Like she said, we we talk and read about stuff for half a session, and the other half we play. And my daughter was very. Uh, upset about it, and she said, no, I don't want to come to you anymore. And so um, she went a few times after that, and then um, she didn't want to go anymore. So, so I found a, a, a psychologist who I took her to, and um, to to just just get it get it evaluated. You know, I wanted to find out what exactly is her problem. But he, he said a lot of things that we mentioned. He said, yeah, that's normal. That's like normal. You know, that, he repeated that a lot. And then uh, she, she didn't like him, and I didn't like him either, to be honest with you. Um, and then I asked um, if, if I can get his, uh, his uh, evaluation result or what he thinks is our issue. And uh, he wouldn't give it to me. He says, no, you have to come back for another session. But she's not willing to go. And I don't want to force her. So I did not go back okay. to that doctor. Sure. And then I found another therapist who specifically, she's a young woman, 
and she's very passionate about youth and kids, and she works with school district, and she has a good background and good relationship with kids. So we started going to her, and I told my daughter, we'll go if you like her. If you, you know, you, you want to go back, we'll go back. If not, we'll find somebody else. But okay. fortunately, she, she left her and she want to go back. Okay. So let me point out some things that I think are very important um, in treating OCD or most anxiety disorders. I, I always suggest to get a full assessment. And um, there is an assessment that a lot of clinicians will use it's called the Y box, the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale. But you really need a mm -hmm. trained clinician to do the assessment and evaluation. Mm -hmm. And it's important that the clinician is trained to do cognitive behavioral therapy, specifically exposure and response prevention, ERP. So talk therapy or playing um, and just focusing on the cognitive components is not sufficient in treating somebody with an anxiety disorder. Okay. So, um, and I also think it's extremely important, especially when you're working with children, to incorporate family members in the treatment. Because oftentimes family members um, with, you know, with good intentions are exacerbating the symptoms. So I was mentioning earlier that oftentimes when people have obsessive thoughts that are causing them distress, they engage in a compulsion to feel a reduction in their anxiety temporarily. But in the long run, it's exacerbating those symptoms. And one of those compulsions could be reassurance seeking. And so a lot of times family members start to accommodate that patient's anxiety. If they like things organized, they come in and they try and organize with them. And those are the very things that could make that person's anxiety worse. So part of it is learning and the exposure for someone, for example, who needs things to be in a certain way is to learn to tolerate the discomfort of not having things be perfectly organized. I've also treated some patients with sensory sensitivity and the cause of that could be many, but I've had clients that have a discomfort in how something feels on their body. And part of it is learning to gradually um, expose them to those very things that they're uncomfortable with until they're able to habituate to the sensations or the feelings. But parents sometimes, um, because they don't know and they don't understand the child's anxiety, might be doing things that might be exacerbating it. So it's always important if you're seeing somebody who's a trained um, clinician that they also incorporate family members or significant others in the treatment process. Okay, um, so what was the assessment you mentioned? I'm going to write it down. Sure, it's the Yale-Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale, and there's other scales, but that's one of the more common scales that is used by trained clinicians to figure out if a patient has OCD. Um, and typically, mm -hmm. somebody who has OCD or is diagnosed with OCD has an hour or more a day of obsessions and compulsions, and it's causing them a great deal of distress. So we do know that one in 40 individuals in the United States have OCD, and about one in 10 have traits of it. And some people um, can you know, function perfectly fine with some traits of OCD, but I always say OCD... Um, and it's kind of a morbid analogy, but it's almost like cancer. 
And when it when you start to engage in compulsions, this starts to grow and it starts to grow in a way that affects so many areas of your life. So part of the work is to get the proper diagnosis and see a trained expert that can help you do the surgery to take this cancer out. <laughs> yeah, so I think that part is really important that you make sure the psychologists you work with specialize in OCD and anxiety disorders because many, most aren't. Most don't have uh, the training and the knowledge and don't do that type of treatment. So I think that's going to be very important. Of course, your daughter has to feel comfortable with the person to even begin the treatment. So that is important to ask her and make sure she feels good, in my opinion. But I would only pursue people who have that type of knowledge and expertise because, as Dr. Vahidi was saying, if you go to someone who doesn't have that knowledge and that uh, the specialization to work in that way, it could even make things worse. Absolutely. And so that's really, really important is to make sure you, you're doing, you know, all this, paying the money, going through all this work, but making sure it's making it better and not worse because then it'd be better not to go at all. So, exactly. Uh, yeah. So I, I would really focus on that part, especially because um, whether it's for kids or adults, if someone doesn't know how to treat OCD, it's not like something where anyone any therapist is going to help you. They really have to have that expertise. So I think that's the most important point from what I heard that, that Dr. Tabasson was saying for you to keep in mind in, in working with this is, yes, to get the right diagnosis and the right treatment, we got to go to someone who really understands OCD and especially OCD in children well. So uh, make sure you find clinicians who have that type of experience and expertise. And I also okay. want to emphasize I would not self-treat. I've... Yeah, I've shared some feedback about how family members could make things worse, but I would not self-treat and I wouldn't um, start implementing any of the things I'm recommending until you've talked to someone who is an expert in the field and understands what's going on with your daughter specifically. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Thank now, you so much. Um, we do, you know, we want, we're, at, we're at a commercial break. Though. Okay, quickly. Maybe we can do it before the break. Okay. So was that uh, picking up something from store related to OCD? And uh, how should I have, um, you know, reacted to that? Well, I'll let her answer the first part for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard for me to say that over the, you know, over the radio, but I don't think so. It, it could have been. It just depends on what was going on for her. But again, that's something that I would definitely address with a, a trained clinician. And I think, you know, these types okay. of things, I... I and what you said, it didn't seem like you shamed her much. I wouldn't. I would make sure you don't shame a child for stealing. You can talk to them about what happened as you did and try to understand what's going on. Um, but, you know, what you did, it, it seems okay. I just would make sure you talk. I, the reason why I asked you is like, to me, it's not just about, okay, do you go back to the store? I think that can be good. But I would make sure you have the conversations afterwards about it and make sure it's not she's a bad person or you're morally doing something wrong i mean or you you're a morally bad person maybe that action wasn't good um, but we want to try to understand it more there's no way to just say that was her ocd or that was not her ocd for sure it could be related to something she has uh, uh, related to her ocd but we don't know and as dr tabasam said she can't just say uh, give you a definitive answer on that. But I think, you know, when parents deal with these types of issues, I think it's good to 
help them resolve situations. So if they have a fight with someone, and it goes back to this whole idea of dealing with fears and anxiety in general, don't just avoid it. Go back and face it. But we want to make sure we're very supportive with them in the process. So if you do go back to the store or if it's a friend's house, that it's not like, you know, my kid did something bad and she's here to tell you how bad she is. You know, she made a mistake or we all can make mistakes or something bad happened or she did something bad and she's here to deal with it. And then also I would commend them for... Um, facing it. You know, I'm really proud of you that you came back and gave that toy back. Even if you encourage them, you know, it's not easy to do those things. And I'm really happy that you did that because we're all going to make mistakes sometimes. Even mommy and daddy make mistakes. But what's really important is how we deal with them afterwards. And so I'd make sure we give the child that feeling of you're proud of them for resolving what, what happened, not just what you did was bad and now you fixed it. Because that's a big lesson to me of teaching kids that when things go wrong, when something happens, we can face that that issue. Um, but we do have to go to a commercial break. I appreciate you uh, calling in. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great thank day. Thank you very much. I appreciate sure, it. Sure. Thank you. And thank you to Dr. Tabasom, who is with me today to talk about anxiety disorders and OCD. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. Back talking to Dr. Tabasom Vahidi about OCD and other anxiety disorders. And coming back to OCD, uh, we were talking a bit, and you mentioned to me once that they, the experts in the field will sometimes call it the doubting disease. Can you explain what that means or why it's called that sometimes? Sure, absolutely. So there's so many ways in which OCD can present, mm -hmm. but they all have something in common, which is that they that everyone with, and most people with anxiety disorders, they can't handle uncertainty. Mm. And OCD is referred to as the doubting disease. Did I lock my door? Will I harm someone? Um, do I, did I hit someone while I was driving? Am I actually in love with my partner? So it's this constant doubt. In other words, the problem lies in trying to eradicate all doubt, which is impossible. Mm. Nothing in life is certain, and most of us could deal with that. But someone with anxiety has trouble accepting that, even, even though they really have no choice, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, we got in a car today to get here, and there is no guarantee that we we're going to get here safely. But most of us don't think about those things until we just kind of deal with them if they were to happen. But mm -hmm. someone with anxiety is anticipating the worst things happening, and they want certainty that those things that they fear will not happen. You're right. And so those... Those things that you said, like it might even come into our mind for a moment, um, and then we think about something else. For someone with OCD, it gets stuck kind of in a way. That's somehow I've thought about it when you see people with OCD. Let's, uh, we might have lots of, we all have intrusive thoughts. Uh, we were talking before the show about is it you have 10,000 thoughts a day or whatever number it is. We have a lot of thoughts, but most of us can filter it out and go to something else. That's but right. with someone with OCD, what tends to happen is they get stuck. So it's a thought of like, oh, what if you get in a car accident? It's like, what if I get in a car accident? That's what, right. And then they can't get, and then it's, they get obsessed with that car accident. And they're paying attention to the content of their thought. Mm -hmm. And instead of dismissing it as, oh, this is another silly OCD thought, mm -hmm. they're paying attention to it. And that's where they get themselves into trouble, trying to answer questions that are coming to their mind. Right. And a lot of the thoughts they're having are useless. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have tens of thousands of thoughts each day. Most of us are not stuck on each of our thoughts. Mm -hmm. And we're able to disregard the thoughts that aren't really useful. Mm -hmm. But with someone with OCD, they may get stuck on one thought 
and it goes in like a circle in their mind. Right. And they wonder why they're thinking it and why is this thought come up and they get trapped in it. And so, you know, part of the treatment is accepting that these things that we fear, we cannot be 100% certain they will not occur. Mm. And actually, Dr. Jonathan Grayson, who's a great friend of mine, very beautifully discusses this in a book uh, titled Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, a personalized recovery program for living with uncertainty. And I highly recommend this book for anyone that is struggling with OCD. Um, The other thing that's important uh, to point out is that we all experience anxiety, Mm -hmm. but people with anxiety disorders experience what we refer to as anxiety sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And it's a term that was coined by Stephen Reese and Richard McNally in the 80s. And it's basically labeled as a fear of fear. In other words, they are frightened of the feelings of fear or anxious about feeling anxious. And oftentimes you'll see this in in people who have panic disorder because they begin to fear the feeling, the physical feelings of anxiety. So they might experience heart palpitations, shortness of breath, tingling in their hands and feet. Mm -hmm. And what oftentimes exacerbates this is when they start to panic, why am I feeling these things? And am I gonna go crazy? Or am I gonna lose my mind? Am I going to get a heart attack or am I going to embarrass myself in public if I experience a panic attack in a situation where escape is not easy? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes these thoughts or these worries about the anxiety only makes it worse. Right. And I think that's it's something interesting with um, feelings in general. Like we have feelings about our feelings that sometimes uh, are worse than the original feeling. That's so right. people often have this with sadness too. They get down about something. And then they're like, oh, I'm sad about, you know, this breakup or something that happened in their dating life. And then that feels bad. But then they start to beat themselves up. Why are you so, you're such a loser to get so sad about someone you only dated for this long? Or what, it's so stupid to be sad. And the, the way they feel about the feeling actually is even worse than the original feeling That's if right. they were able to just acknowledge it's and embrace. The mindset of, I'm not supposed to feel this. Exactly. It needs to go away. Exactly. So feelings about feelings are important, but especially with anxiety, like you were saying, yeah, people with panic attacks is a very common thing they experience. I think I've heard it also called secondary anxiety, but it's like this, what if I have another panic attack today That's or right. tomorrow? Or how do I know? Or like you said, what if it happens tomorrow when I'm at that party with all those people and I embarrass myself? And that itself can exacerbate and make things worse. And so you mentioned before that OCD and anxiety kind of like they can be like this vicious monster, Mm -hmm. but then it kind of feeds itself more and it grows and grows. Unfortunately, another reason why getting treatment early is uh, so important. But something else I wanted to mention, because I think it's so critical uh, when you talk about uncertainty, because to me, life is full of uncertainty. And one sign to me of mental health is being able to tolerate uncertainty That's right. because you don't have certainty in almost anything really, nope. especially yeah. in the future. You don't, but even of now is my partner faithful or loyal. You hopefully have a trust in it, but there's no 100%. There Am is. I going to die tomorrow? Or is my friend going to die? My f- you can't say 100%. We have to be able to live with uncertainty. And for people with OCD, that uncertainty is virtually feels unbearable. And not only is it uncertainty, they tend to go, I think, in the negative route. So they catastrophize and think the worst is going to happen. Right. So it's not just uncertain. It's almost like they're destined to be doomed. And that can be so difficult to deal with. And that's why these 
obsessive thoughts are so difficult and they try to come up with something to get them to go away, which, which ends up being these compulsions, which kind of have this like superstitious type feel, which takes away the, the, the obsession and they go, okay. And now, so it's a solution, but of course a very temporary and distressful solution. And the problem just continues and grows. And that's what's so difficult about this disorder is dealing with that. Right. And I always meant to mention to clients when we do exposures that I don't even guarantee to them that these exposures are 100% safe and that nothing is going to go mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. The probability of something going wrong is small, but we take, you know, once they're at that point where they're ready to do exposures, we take that small risk. And the issue is people with anxiety disorders, when you tell them the probability of this happening is very, very low, they're still frightened because they don't think in terms of probability. They think in terms of possibility. Mm -hmm. If right. this is possible, then I'm going to worry about it. Yeah. And we know humans in general, we're not very good at, you know, we talk a lot about statistics and probability, but in our mind, especially in our emotional kind of mind, we're not very good at understanding. Like you said, if it's still, oh, it's one in a million. You're like, oh, but it can happen. It reminds me of actually that in Jim Carrey and Dumb and <laughs> yeah. Dumber when he says, uh, you know, she tells him there's I not a chance. chance. Yeah, she says the first is like not a good chance, like one in a hundred. Like, no, I mean one in a million. He says, so you're telling me there's a chance. And so I guess people with OCD, they have <laughs> that right. kind of feeling of, so you're telling me there's a chance. The worst thing I'm worried about can happen. And that just, they can't tolerate that even possibility. And like you said, they it's hard to really for them to, comprehend how unlikely something is or to can even live with yeah it can happen but you have to be exactly. able to live with that possibility even if it is distressing but with someone with OCD it is very distressing and I think you know you mentioned this word exposure a lot and it's something I want to spend uh, some time about sure. we have a few more minutes in this uh, segment it'll probably continue after the break but exposure and that's um, you mentioned it even with the caller of exposure with response prevention so can you maybe talk a bit about what exposure is, and then we can get into what it looks like uh, when it comes to treating uh, phobias, especially in OCD. So I think it's um, important also to remember that part of the treatment is to change your relationship with your own anxiety. Mm -hmm. And instead of having the mindset of, I'm not supposed to feel this, this has to stop, this has to go away, to invite it mm. and allow it to be there. Because that's when we then see it kind of slowly go down. Mm -hmm. And when we do exposures, and oftentimes some people like to do gradual exposures rather than dive into something that's scary. And, you know, I've noticed that a lot of my patients find that more effective. Mm -hmm. But we gradually have them face the things that they're most afraid of. Mm -hmm. And obviously there has to be the response prevention, which means you go into the fear, but you're not engaging in any kind of behavior to reduce the anxiety. Like and the compulsions or exactly. if it's a phobia, the avoidance, basically. Absolutely. Right. And that's, again, the thing, it's exposure. You're getting exposed right. to the thing that you're afraid of or you're that causes the, the And the, the mindset is the key because if you're going into an exposure with, gosh, I can't wait for this to be over so I could just go home, mm -hmm. it's not going to be effective. But if yeah. you go into it with the mindset of, I'm going to let the anxiety be there. I'm going to take away my safety crutches, the things I would want to hold on to that gave me comfort. Mm -hmm. And obviously you want to do this gradually and with someone who's trained to do this. Um, but you start to notice that if you can stay in that anxiety long enough, it's going to go down. Yeah. And there's some research to show that typically when we put someone in an exposure, the anxiety you know, will reduce within 60 to 90 minutes. 
And for a lot of my clients, even quicker than that. Some mm -hmm. people, the anticipatory anxiety is the highest. Then they're in the situation. And within 10 minutes, when they take on that mindset of, I want this, you know, let it be there. I'm not going to resist it. I'm not going to fight it. Notice that their anxiety has gone down. Mm -hmm. And I think even, you know, you're saying that mindset is so important. But my guess is it doesn't mean they're not afraid or they're not anxious. They're still afraid, right. but they're embracing it. It's kind of like when you jump into like a cold pool and you know it's going to be cold, but you just jump in. It doesn't mean you think exactly. it's going to feel good, but you jump in anyway. And so, you know, when people do exposure therapy, and I'm sure a lot of the work is also prepping them for the exposure because you know they're going to be anxious. I'm sure even people probably cancel those treatments mm -hmm. a lot oh, of yeah. like they don't want to face it. So, well. uh, you know, it's it's never going to be not scary. If you're waiting That's for it right. to not be scary or for you not to be anxious about it, you'll never do it. Just like... Well, we always, you know, I'm always preparing them in going into the exposures. And so they're feeling a bit more confident mm -hmm. in what they're going to be doing. But again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's really about the mindset. So a lot of patients have come to me and they say, you know, my last therapist, we did deep breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. You know, we did mindfulness training, um, progressive muscle relaxation. And these are all um, wonderful techniques that can help with your overall anxiety. Mm -hmm. But again, if you're doing these things with the mindset that this has to stop, I'm going to do this you know, relaxation technique to get the anxiety to go away. Mm -hmm. You're going to get into trouble. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important, the mind, understanding that it's not going to go away. And yeah. so people have to be ready that if you are dealing with a phobia or if you have OCD, treatment is not going to be a cakewalk or be something comfortable. But right. it can completely change your life in a really significant way. But again, the only way out is through and the only way is to face that fear. And, you know, to me, it's about... It's not just if you have anxiety disorder or OCD, but all of us in life have things that we get anxious about and anxiety and also fear makes us want to avoid the thing That's that right. we're anxious or fearful of. Whether it's, you know, a project at work or even a conversation. I talk all the time about uncomfortable conversations that make us anxious in a relationship, but that we have to be willing to have them anyway. It's never going to feel good. You're never going to feel, I can't wait to talk about this thing that makes me feel insecure or makes me feel uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable by definition, but in order to be healthy in our life, healthy physically, healthy emotionally, healthy relationships, we very often have to sometimes face things that don't feel good, but face them anyway. And so it comes down to courage to face those things. Absolutely. And that was the book I talked about on Monday night's show, The Courage to be Disliked, which I loved the title, but it was this idea in Adlerian psychology that to make change or to change your lifestyle, to change something, it takes courage to take those steps. We're always afraid of the unknown and we'd rather even accept a pain that we know than to face the unknown and see what happens because we don't know. Right. But in order to make progress, we always have to be willing to take that step into the unknown, take that leap and, and see where we end up. But especially when it comes to treatment with a psychologist, you're taking a leap, but you're in good hands. That's right. And it still takes courage, but knowing that you have that person there who's a professional, who knows what they're doing, who's going to make sure... I don't want to say make sure even give you that reassurance, but <laughs> who can support you in that process, I think is important. And so Dr. Tawasun Vahidi in her practice deals with OCD and phobias and does exposure therapy, which we're going to talk more about after the break. But for those of you in the LA area, 
Um, I want to give her office number again, 323-813-6070. Because if you're dealing with the phobia, if you're dealing with OCD, you're dealing with a lot of pain and distress, and there is help out there. So seek it out. But we'll talk a bit more after the break about exposure therapy and what it looks like, because I think people will find it quite fascinating. I always do. Um, I'm here with Dr. Tabasum Vahidi. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. We'll be right back. back. I'm joined today by clinical psychologist, Dr. Tabasam Vahidi. We're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder and other anxiety disorders. And before the break, we were talking about uh, exposure therapy, which is one of the main forms of psychotherapy that is used for OCD and phobias. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like? So again, the name itself, exposure, getting exposed to the thing you're actually afraid of, like you said, um, without the typical responses that let's say someone with OCD would go to their compulsions, you don't let them do that. Or if it's a phobia, you don't let them avoid it. They face the fear. That's the exposure part of it. Can you maybe tell us more, even get in depth of kind of like one example of what exposure therapy might look like so the listeners get an idea of what to expect or what it does look like in real life? Sure. So um, yes, I do treat um, a lot of patients with OCD and panic disorder, various kinds of phobias. Um, I've treated patients with the fear of needles, fear of getting in the elevator, um, fear of flying. And a lot of this, unfortunately, can't take place in just a therapy office. You need to go outside the office to allow them to experience being in these uh, situations that they're afraid of. Mm -hmm. So I, I do participate in that with the patient. So I've been on a flight with patients. I've, you know, driven in the freeway with patients. I've done height exposures with mm -hmm. patients that are afraid of heights. And it's important to note that when we experience something as scary or dangerous, we develop in our brains a danger signal or these fear circuits, which we can't unlearn. So you might be wondering, well, well, then how can I get better? And it sounds quite disappointing that we can't unlearn these fear circuits that have now been developed in our brain. But through exposure therapy, we can create new neurological circuits in the brain or new neural pathways that can override the fear circuit. Mm. And this is why exposure therapy is helpful in overcoming fears. In other words, you're retraining the brain to re-experience a situation or circumstance as safe that you had previously experienced as dangerous. But the key is that you repeat this exposure and for long periods of time and you generalize it to various situations mm. because you want to strengthen what I would refer to as the safety signal in the brain that will then override the danger signal. Interesting. Yeah. So it's not that the phobia will let, or the OCD, but let's say a phobia will 100% go away. Like you overcome it as if you don't care anymore, but that you strengthen, like you said, the safety signals or almost like your support in your brain uh, neurologically to overcome or at least face that fear. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned, for example, uh, you've been on flights with clients mm -hmm. who have a fear of flying. Can you talk a bit more about what, what does the treatment look like? So I, obviously I'm sure you don't just fly on the plane and fly back, I'm assuming things are happening during the flight or if you're talking with the client about what they're experiencing, I don't know exactly what it is, but what does it, what, what would it look like, the actual treatment part of, of uh, an exposure? 
So prior to going into an exposure, there's mm -hmm. a lot of work that needs to be done where you're educating the patient about how they're going to cope with their anxiety and how they're going to relate to their anxiety because they're used to relating uh, with it by avoiding. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go into this situation because it's going to make me uncomfortable. So maybe they've missed out on family trips. Maybe they haven't gone to places they wanted to go because they're afraid of getting in the plane. So first we need to do that. We also need to accept that there's risk involved, mm -hmm. like with anything else in life, that there's no 100% guarantee that you're going to get on a pl flight and land, you know, fine. Or if there's some people that are not really afraid of the plane crashing, but they might just be claustrophobic mm -hmm. Or they might even have the fear of getting a panic attack in the plane and not being able to escape. So it could be various things. First, you need to also understand what is their specific fear and what triggers their fear. And, it, you know, you have to gather this information to be able to construct an effective exposure. Mm -hmm. I also emphasize the importance of gradually getting rid of safety crutches. So I know a lot of clients of mine, when they go into fear situations, they engage in safety behaviors. So maybe, um, and I've had people say, you know, I listen to relaxing music to get me to calm down. Or I do deep breathing exercises to get myself to calm down. Or I carry Xanax with me in my pocket just to make sure if I need it, I can take it. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, it's fine. But eventually, you want to take away or remove these safety crutches and have them really get comfortable with experiencing the anxiety. Mm. We need to induce to reduce. So gradually, I may start off slow. You know, for example, with someone who has a fear of flying, maybe we just go to the airport and watch the planes. Maybe we... If it's that they're claustrophobic, we recreate other situations that could be similar before we actually get into a plane. Hmm. And eventually, once they're there, I do track. I always recommend they track their anxiety mm -hmm. and see how long it takes for the anxiety to go down. But the key is, in order to strengthen the safety signals in the brain, it's almost as though you're retraining your brain, mm -hmm. right, to experience this as safe. So in order for you to do that, you really need to repeat this behavior because whatever we we repeat is what our brains get good at. Right. And that's actually, unfortunately, what the OCD or the phobia does. It's gotten good at the phobic response to that's whatever right. it is. And so, like you said, we're trying to, in a way, override it or come up with safe feelings around this thing that's so scary. Uh, so it's interesting how much, like you said, the prep work is there so you don't just hop on a flight if someone right. has a fear of phobia the first session but eventually first of that prep work and then when you go in but i'm wondering so you said the tracking that means when they're on the flight you're actually asking them to track their anxiety throughout i'm the tracking process? it even before uh -huh. i want to know what is their anticipate and oftentimes i've noticed for some patients the anticipatory anxiety is always much higher mm -hmm. so then they're in it and they realize okay this is uncomfortable but they embrace it yeah. And they sit with the discomfort and they invite the discomfort and they might even do the things they wouldn't typically do. And they notice that over um, maybe some time that anxiety has gone down. But I always like to track it and I think it's really good for people with anxiety to really um, externalize mm -hmm. their anxiety. So sometimes I've even done script exposures. There are certain fears or certain anxieties that we can't really recreate Hmm. So we might write about it. 
and expose them to those thoughts that they're afraid of. And sometimes just putting it down on a piece of paper and looking at it and externalizing it could be anxiety provoking initially, but that also you tend to habituate to it. And the goal is that they're going to habituate to this experience that they felt was scary. Mm -hmm. But because we can't unlearn the danger signals or these fear circuits that have been developed, there is potential for relapse. And I think it's really important to repeat the exposures if you sense that those fears are coming back up again to keep it at bay. So the goal of treatment um, is to also learn the skill sets that you can then use in other areas of your life. Mm -hmm. I think most people have some fear or some anxiety. So I think when my clients come in and they learn these skill sets, they realize it's really helped them in so many aspects of their life. It's yeah. not just that specific fear. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a sense of confidence. Yeah, that if feeling. I could yeah. do this, then there's what else, you know, have I been avoiding that I that I could do sure. if I was to apply these techniques? I think that's, yeah, that to me is so important. That's why I think it's it's definitely the way you have to treat OCD or phobias to face it. But it's even if you don't have a full-blown phobia or you don't have OCD, all of us have fears of things that we avoid because we're scared of them or we make them bigger than they need to be. That's right. But then we realize if we face it, we see it's not that scary. It's kind of like the idea with like the monster underneath your bed where you think mm -hmm. it's like a scary thing and you look and maybe nothing's there or even if you, you know, kind of it's like a joke. But if something's there, you say, oh, it's not that scary. But right. when you don't face it, it just grows and grows in your head like, oh, that, oh, flying, flying is so scary. It's the worst thing. It's so scary. But then you face it like, oh, and then you realize other things in your life that you're probably afraid of applying for a new job where it's not a phobia, but you might have a fear or an anxiety about it or uh, talking to your partner about something or whatever else it might be that we create and we make it so big. And it's very empowering to think I can have the courage to face these things. I might still be anxious. I might still be afraid, but I can face them. And that's very empowering. And so uh, I know I've talked to you, but the I'm sure the experiences that people have when they go through the exposure and they overcome the phobia or they face it, they must it must be incredible seeing them go through that process and how they feel afterwards, how empowered they feel. Right. Well, I've heard a lot of my clients say, oh my gosh, I wish I treated this sooner mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I feel so much, I, I missed out on so much in my life. Yeah. Um, and they feel empowered and it motivates them to want to address other things they're going through mm -hmm. other fear you know ex anxieties or fears so i do think that when you experience an ex when you experience the effects of an exposure it's quite empowering yeah and i think what's also important to keep in mind and uh, hearing you talk about that is you know when we look at people's issues whatever they are it's very easy to look at someone else's issue and think it's so simple or just in your head or, oh, you're afraid of flying. Come on. There's no chance you're going to crash. You're afraid of spiders. They can't even do anything to you. But I think it's, you know, I always try to remember the compassion of whatever issue you have, whatever issue I have for someone else might be quite simple or not an issue at all. And whatever issue they have to me might not be an issue, but we all That's have right. stuff. We all have issues. So you might not be afraid at all, all of something, but you might be a little bit afraid of this, or you might have a hard time doing this or doing that. But it's having that compassion that we all have something. And even someone with a phobia, by definition, knows that their fear is not proportionate to the danger. So they say, That's I right. understand, especially if they're not in the plane. But you talk to them and say, I know there's a one in a whatever chance of crashing and probably nothing's going to happen. They get that. But the phobic response happens anyway. That's it's right. more of coming kind of, we can say, from an emotional place. It's not just like this rational place. So 
that's another reason why I think talk therapy doesn't work to tell them, oh, you know, the chance of a plane crash or one in 500, that, whatever it is. So you have nothing to worry about. That doesn't do it. You have to go through the process of feeling it and, and then, experience. you know, this exposure and experience. That's the only way that talking it through doesn't work. Or even trying to figure out why you have the fear. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of clients that will come in, well, how did I develop this? Mm-hmm. You know, why do I have a fear of planes? And to some extent, maybe we can, you know, go back to a particular situation and see what the source was. But at the end of the day, we still have to treat the symptom. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, most things, the cause is how you treat something. But here in OCD, it's not really that way that even if you figure out, oh, you went on a flight when you were five years old and your mom got really scared. So that created this phobic response, whatever it might be, that maybe get, helps them get some perspective. But you're saying it doesn't treat it. It doesn't mean it's going to go away once you That's figure right. out the cause. You have to, because now, as you said, this phobic link has been created in their brain, which is kind of automatic. So mm-hmm. they can't just unlearn that or take that away just because now they know where it came from. The brain just automatically responds. So they can't just overpower it by this knowledge. It's not going to be enough. It has to be experiential, right. which is, again, why, you know, when we talked to that caller and you mentioned it uh just now as well when it comes to treating phobias and ocd we have to be aware of working with an expert because typical talk therapy actually can make things worse or not be helpful at all and so it's very important to work with someone um, who has that expertise and is going to do the right type of treatment so that's something you know if you're anyone who's listening if you have ocd if you have a phobia make sure the psychologist first of all i hope you get help but second of all whoever you go to make sure they have that experience and expertise because the normal treatments that people do in talk therapy can actually even backfire or not be helpful. You need someone who, who can do that. You know, we're getting into our last commercial break. Um, we talked a bit about what OCD is and a little bit about what it isn't, but one uh, disorder that people sometimes can confuse or can be hard to differentiate with obsessive compulsive disorder is ob- obsessive compulsive personality disorder, OCPD. So after the break, maybe we can get into that a little bit helping people differentiate between OCD and OCPD uh, and a few other closing thoughts uh, about OCD and, and phobias and, and things of that sort. So again, my guests today, Dr. Tabas Vahidi, we're talking about OCD and anxiety disorders. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined by clinical psychologist, Dr. Tawasun Vahidi. We're talking about OCD and other anxiety disorders. And before the break, I mentioned that, um, you know, in diagnosing obsessive compulsive disorder, it can be difficult because there's other disorders that might look like it. And sometimes people might not be sure what's what. So one that they sound very similar is obsessive compulsive disorder and then obsessive compulsive personality disorder, OCD, OCPD. Can you maybe... Tell people a bit about the differences between those sure. two. Sure. So um, OCPD, uh, it doesn't really present with the true obsessions and compulsions that you see in OCD. These are people who are typically preoccupied with details, rules. Um, they're making lists and schedules to the point where maybe the major um, point of the activity is lost. They show a great deal of perfectionism that interferes with task completion. Uh, they're inflexible, and there's a sense of righteousness that um, about the way things should be done, mm-hmm. and they're unable to compromise. Um, they might also show an inability to um, 
give responsibility to others because they feel that they're going to do it better. So they take mm -hmm. on a lot more. Right. Because things have to be done a particular way or exactly. else it makes them feel anxious. So, yeah, I mean, that big difference. And actually, I think when people tend to think, oh, he's so OCD or OC, you know, she's so OCD or I'm so OCD. It tends to be more the OCPD, like they people that like things in order. Things have to be a certain way or else they can't tolerate it or um, inflexible about certain things. So often what people think of as being so, quote unquote, OCD, I think very often is more of an obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Whereas like we talked about before, OCD is more about the obsessions that someone has in those compulsive behaviors. Whereas OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, is more about people who need things to be a certain way they're obsessed with rules and things about right and wrong and have extreme perfectionism exactly. and so it looks different and one big component or one differentiating factor is that people with ocpd the personality disorder tend to actually like the way they are um, whereas someone with ocd is really suffering and doesn't feel That's good right. at all and might is actually usually ashamed of even having the disorder and won't talk about it whereas someone with ocpd might even show off about how organized they are or how well they keep you know things in a certain way i know how to do this and right. i'm doing it the right way and everyone right. else is doing it the wrong way mm -hmm. so another important um factor that uh that makes ocd and ocpd different is that people with ocd have insight mm -hmm. meaning they're aware of their unwanted thoughts as being unreasonable whereas people with ocpd think their way is right and the best way and they usually feel pretty comfortable with their own system of rules. Mm -hmm. So they just get frustrated when they feel other people are not doing things their way. Right. Um, there's also oftentimes an excessive devotion to work that gets in the way of social and family activities. Mm -hmm. You also see more males with OCPD than you do females. But And you don't have to have all these characteristics sure. to be diagnosed with OCPD. But they really don't have a lot of desire to change. Oftentimes, they will go into therapy when it's a partner that's saying, I can't be in this relationship anymore. You're going to have to change these things. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, yeah, this is something, uh, there's like a psychological term for uh, these types of issues where we call them egosyntonic, meaning for the person who has it, they actually can feel quite good about how they feel or okay right. with it. Whereas OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is egodystonic, meaning the person who has Absolutely. it doesn't feel good about it and doesn't feel want to be that way. And that's why they actually might even hide it because they think it's something bad and maybe even shameful, that's something they should be ashamed of. Whereas someone with OCD, they might think, yeah, other people are the problem. And this tends to be the case with personality disorders in general. Someone who has narcissistic personality disorder doesn't think, gosh, I'm, you know, I want too much approval and I think of myself too highly. They think, no, I'm supposed to think of myself this way. The problem is other people don't give me the respect right. I deserve or the recognition I deserve or they treat me in a wrong right. way. The issue is more externalized. It's exactly. So that's a big difference uh, between OCD and OCPD. Someone with OCD doesn't feel good about it at all, might even feel even ashamed of having the obsessive right. compulsive disorder. Someone with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, as you mentioned, might think, no, this is the right way to do things. Other people do it wrong. Or, I don't understand how people can't, they can actually be very judgmental about people mm -hmm. who don't follow the rules or do things the way they do them because they think this is the right way to do things. Uh, another disorder that people might wonder about in general, but also wonder if it's similar to OCD or how to differentiate them would be generalized anxiety disorder. Maybe you can talk about that a little sure. bit. Sure. And yes, they're both anxiety disorders, mm -hmm. 
But with generalized anxiety disorder, there's a constant worry about real life concerns or future events. So they'll think, did my son arrive home safely? Will I pass this exam? Will I arrive on time? You know, will I give birth to a healthy child? And these are, you know, worries that all of us may have at some point in our life. But with someone with generalized anxiety disorder, these worries are excessive. So, and they tend to catastrophize about the worst happening. Mm -hmm. So along with these symptoms may also come a lot of physical sensations of anxiety. They might experience restlessness, fatigue, irritability, muscle tension. So, um, but with OCD, their worries are more unrealistic and may even involve some magical thinking. Mm -hmm. So going back to what you were saying a little earlier, oftentimes people with OCD have thoughts that are more ego dystonic. When I was referring to some of the examples of different OCD symptoms, um, whether it be, for example, uh, sexual orientation OCD or relationship OCD, and I've seen this oftentimes in my practice, there's a great deal of shame around having these thoughts because it's ego dystonic or ego alien. It doesn't really match up to their sort of core fundamental beliefs or values. Uh, so as an example, somebody that says, I have relationship OCD, I'm constantly thinking about maybe I'm married to the wrong person, maybe I don't really love them, maybe they're not the right partner for me, but they know that they actually really love their partner. So they're wondering, why am I having these thoughts? Why are these thoughts still there? And so these thoughts are very ego dystonic. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of shame uh, to share these thoughts. Mm -hmm. And they're afraid of people's judgments. Whereas with generalized anxiety disorder, oftentimes these thoughts are more egocentric. I'm just afraid I'm not going to pass this exam. Right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel... Um, it, it's still, you know, it's, it almost feels as though it's a normal concern. But with someone with generalized anxiety disorder, it's just excessive. Okay. Yeah, so there is that difference. And someone with generalized, as the name implies, generalized means in a phobia, it's about one thing that you're afraid of and you avoid. But generalized anxiety disorder, they're worried about a lot of different things. They're constantly right. something. It's almost like they, uh, the kind of person who, if they don't have anything to worry about, they worry about that, right? <laughs> right. So they're always worried about Why something. Why am I not worried? Exactly. So they're anxious about something all the time and right. always trying to figure out a way of That's right. uh, something to be worried about. And so, yeah, the diagnosis is going to be very important. And the treatment um, is very important. So I'm joined by uh, clinical psychologist, Dr. Tawas Vahidi, and we've been talking about OCD and other anxiety disorders. And I think, again, what's so important for people to realize is anxiety is something that all of us have. And I mentioned it before that psychological disorders tend to be an exaggeration of something that's natural and normal for us to have, but it becomes the place where it's then hurting us and not helping us anymore. Having some fear was good. You know, if you saw a snake and you jump and run away, that's an instinct. It's a fear mm -hmm. response that we all Absolutely. have that is a good thing. The problem is when it becomes excessive and becomes a phobia um, or when it becomes a phobia, it's something we don't need to be afraid of, like going on a plane or getting uh, blood drawn whatever it might be that might be your phobia, that's when it becomes a problem. And so I think this is what's interesting about anxiety disorders and phobias or fears is that 
in our brain, when we are afraid of something, we think that means avoided. And there's something healthy about that. But it's becoming maladaptive when it's a phobia or OCD. Well said. Exactly. So that's the problem. It's like, okay, it's something maladaptive. that, you know, fear is usually that idea of we should go away from it. But in this case, it's causing distress right. that we don't so face. So you're not actually in danger, right? right? So we have this incredible built-in emergency system mm-hmm. that will go off in times of danger and it's a good thing we have that because it can help us react quickly to things that are really dangerous mm-hmm. but when someone has anxiety or is even afraid of something or has a phobia um, or even with panic disorder it's almost as though the the alarm system is going off for no reason mm-hmm. so it's important to acknowledge that to notice that I'm not actually in danger, but my body is reacting as though it is. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, like you said before, just the knowledge is not going to change it or turn it off, but it can be helpful in recognizing it's something I don't need to be afraid of. And again, the idea that me being afraid of it doesn't mean I shouldn't face it. And so that to me is a big message uh, about this, the treatment exposure therapy, which I think to me makes it so fascinating is that you're facing the fear. And I think that's something that I want to tell just everyone when I look at them mm-hmm. in therapy is almost always they're afraid of something. They're afraid That's of right. the change they want to make. So I say, oh, I want to be in a relationship so bad. Right. And all I want is a relationship. All I want is a relationship. But then you realize when you start talking to them, get a little bit deeper, that they don't realize how afraid of a relationship they might also be. Right. And then that fear is contributing to them not going forward or being in a relationship and not getting close to the person. And they don't realize the fear of intimacy they might have of getting close. That's right. And that so, fear doesn't mean avoid it. The fear means you have to recognize it. And I had this quote a couple of weeks ago of don't let the fear win. So you're mm-hmm. afraid, you recognize it, you acknowledge it, but you do it anyway. That's right. And you don't just let the fear win and let the fear make the final decision and how you live your life and what you choose to do and especially what you choose not to do. That's right. And so I think that's what's so cool about the exposure work. It's like, hey, you're afraid of this. I get it but we're going to face it. You know, I think that's kind of, I like that idea. Like to go into what you're most afraid of. Rather than, as you said, and you mentioned it to our caller who was talking about her daughter, where usually people say they're afraid. Oh, you're afraid of it. Oh, don't worry. Don't look at it. Don't go around it. Go away from it. Which you hear a lot of parents think to their kids. Right, exactly. And we do it to ourselves too. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't want my child to be uncomfortable. I want to escape the situation that's causing my child distress. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I want to emphasize that I think is important is We do want to always, when we make decisions, and I think this doesn't just apply to treating anxiety or phobias, but Mm -hmm. when we want to make decisions, it's really important to sometimes ask ourselves, are we making this decision because of our fears? Mm -hmm. Or is there something that we should be concerned about? Mm -hmm. When you were talking about relationships, there are certain people that you shouldn't be in a relationship with, right? So it's okay to avoid that person. Mm -hmm. However, when that person is treating you well and things are going well mm-hmm. and you're resisting being in that, then you have to ask yourself, is my fear dictating this or is there a good reason for me to, be to remove myself? Right. Exactly. I mean, that's, yeah. Is, is the fear or the anxiety really, ge- like, I don't want to say genuine, but a way genuine or is it maladaptive? And that's, I think mm-hmm. that's the thing. So we're not, you know, your point is not to say, and that's why we were saying that anxiety and fear and these disorders are an exaggeration of something healthy fear is healthy if you're you know in the middle of the street and a car is about to hit you you jump out of the way actually even before you know what's going on sometimes that's your instinctual fear kicking in so fear is great but the problem is when fear is maladaptive or it's in the wrong place and it's not always clear there's no signal in your brain oh this is real fear this is fake fear or this is something you don't need to be afraid of it feels the same to us 
and it is sometimes hard to differentiate. And so you're right, you might be dating someone and it's not the fear of anxiety, it might be that they actually are the wrong person and that's making you not feel okay. And that's why these things can be so hard to unpack. And this side, you know, this fear of intimacy stuff, I think is more something you can unpack through right. ther talk therapy, the, you know, the traditional talk therapy, because it isn't always so clear. Is it really fear of, am I, you know, am I feeling uh, insecure in this relationship because of my own issues or is my mm -hmm. partner triggering something because he or she actually isn't so that's stable right. or trustworthy? Or am I staying in something unhealthy because I'm afraid Oh, yeah. Of getting out and oh, being alone. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah, going back to fear of change. I mean, people uh, in relationships are very afraid right. of the pain of the mm -hmm. breakup, of the unknown. Can I find someone better? Of the loneliness, maybe the, all those types of things. All those things. And come up. again, so that to me, why is you know that idea of don't let the fear win in your life? To me, is such a, a motto to live by, uh, because anything you want to do that involves change is going to involve some fear and anxiety. But right. it doesn't mean you're not supposed to do it. That's right. And so people who have that in their life. You know, it's something to think about, but especially when we're talking about phobias and obsessive compulsive disorder, which is what we were talking about today, I really hope people will not just let the that fear win and think, okay, because it's something I'm scared of, I have to just live avoid with that it. fear and avoid it That's and right. actually face it head on. And uh, you can work with wonderful psychologists like Dr. Tabasman Vahidi and dealing with it, doing exposure therapy and other forms of treatment. And again, I'll mention her number for people in the area, uh, Los Angeles area, 323-813-6070. You can give her a call. And again, you don't have to live with that fear. You can face it. Absolutely. And there's great treatment for treating mm -hmm. anxiety and it's treatable. Yeah. Exactly. So I hope people will, will seek out some help. Uh, a big thank you, thank Dr. Tawasavadi. Thank you Savaiti. for having me. It really was a pleasure. And I, I think people this. got a lot of information. I learned a lot so. from it too. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank I'm sure, sure we'll have show. you back on soon. Uh, and also thank you to everyone who's listening out there in our caller and to Ghazale who's here at the beginning of the show and now Amir who's here now helping us out. Uh, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>